0: Hello, this is Tom Pasello, the ROI guy, and welcome to the Evolvers Podcast. My guest today is Greg Brown. Greg's been a seller and sales leader, starting with Xerox, and including some of the industry's most successful emerging tech companies, including salesforce.com, Epiphany, PeopleSoft, and Aptis. Greg was able to join each of these companies in their very early stages, pre-IPO in most cases, and help them grow into market leaders. Greg Brown, welcome.
1: Thank you, Thomas. Great to be here.
0: So, I, I love origin stories. Tell me how you found your way into a career in sales.
1: Well, that's interesting. You know, I, I got an opportunity to go to work for Xerox straight out of college. I'd interviewed with several companies, and a friend of mine was working there, and, you know, he, uh, he sort of recommended me and I thought it would be a great start. They always had a good reputation for being excellent in, in sales training. And uh, so it was a great uh, starting point for my, for my career.
0: Absolutely. I had the pleasure of uh, being part of Gartner for a little while, selling my first company to Gartner, and they were all Xerox trained sellers and some of the best that I had ever met. And in fact, some of them are still with me. And I think you guys used at Xerox uh, derivation of spin selling, is that correct?
1: We did actually, they had just uh, transitioned from uh, uh, personal selling sales, PSS, to spin. And that's the Neil Rackman methodology, obviously. And it, I think it's the, one of the best, best uh, books ever written, best methodologies ever created. Uh, so it's kind of the foundation for everything I do, and I know there's some other great methodologies that I think have kind of evolved from SPIN, and they're, you know, medic and challenger and value-based selling. There's a host of others. I think they're all fundamentally based on the concept of SPIN, though, and it's to attach needs to the implications of those needs and, to, and then to the payoff, which is the, the impact. And so everything I've done since my Xerox days are kind of fundamentally based on those, on those theories.
0: Absolutely. And I've been uh, spin trained as well. And it is the foundation for a lot of what I've written about uh, later on uh, as different kind of spins on the, um, on that methodology to improve it over time. But a lot of those fundamentals have stuck with me and are still applied and used successfully today. So I mentioned some of the companies that you've had the pleasure to join fairly early uh, Epiphany, uh, PeopleSoft, uh, which I've worked with before, Salesforce, which we, uh, we've we integrated with. Man, those are some very successful companies. Uh, what made you choose those as opposed to other routes or other companies?
1: Well, I've, I've worked hard to try to uh, identify technology companies that provide solutions that de- de- deliver more strategic business outcomes. And they have a compelling and quantitative impact on the customers that we're working with versus sort of more of an incremental and qualitative so i look for companies that have uh you know what i've considered to be sort of a disruptive uh technology or solution and uh you know i've had some good fortune over the years i joined salesforce when they were pre-ipo i was employee number 200 and something there and it's funny tom when i first got the call to to talk with them my my response to recruiter was you've got to be out of your mind like have you not been paying attention like anything with the name com in it is is, uh, you know, is persona non grata. But mm-hmm. I always knew that sort of that approach that that, uh, you know, the, the sort of the SAS model had some value there and it was very disruptive at the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it sounds like I mean, these are fairly complex solutions um, and complex outcomes that you're you're having to sell into. Right. I bet you that was part of the attraction
1: it was I, I like selling into the c-suite I, I like solving for big problems i like helping influence uh the 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 sort of the narrative with respect to what the customer is trying to get out of the the solution itself and so i i do have a tendency to go for you know bigger broader uh, higher impact uh technology solutions
0: now being in sales for such a long time Uh, I'm sure that, you know, we talked about a lot of the positive experiences. I'm sure there've been some sales experiences that didn't work out so well. And I know I've learned a lot about uh, from those experiences that I've had. Tell me about what you'd categorize as your worst sales call and what you learned from it.
1: Well, like you, Tom, I've been a part of some some great sales calls and things that worked exactly according to plan uh, and then ones that, that didn't. Um, you know, I guess one that kind of jumps out at me. Uh, I was actually, be, I was actually the, the the salesperson on this. Even though I was leading the sales team, one of my reps was on vacation, so I was the, you know, if you need to contact someone in my absence, sort of a recipient of an email. And uh, turns out we had a lead. I was fairly highly qualified. It was a good quality opportunity, and so I took the first call. And you know, having been in sales for you know quite some time, I felt you know really supremely qualified. Uh, to to take the call, Uh, you know, very quickly in in talking with the customer, um, you know, I asked uh, some some basic questions around how'd you hear about us and sort of some general sort of, you know, uh, rapport building type questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, and, 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 and he said, well, when can we see the demo? And, um, you know, I've been coaching salespeople for years on, you know, we have to do discovery, we just can't go into the demo. And, And naturally, I took that approach, which was, Hey, I'd love to do a demo. We need to learn a little bit more about your company. Uh, What are the business objectives? What are the requirements? He said, tell you what, I'll I'll send you what I've sent the other vendors. And that's my technical specs and my uh, functional requirements. And that's all I can send you because we just don't have time to mess around with anything else. We've already done our fair share of research. And therefore, we really need you to get in here, you know, and do, do a demo for. So, you know, I was immediately faced with what my salespeople face all the time, which is the tension of a misaligned buyer and seller journey. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was a that was a tough moment for me to have to deal with as a sales leader.
0: So what did you wind up doing in that case? Did you jump right well, into the demo?
1: <laughs> you know, long story short, I, I agreed to do the demo. Yes, I, I did. Know, I know, because you can't keep every...
0: stiff-arming them, right? I mean, even though you well, don't want to do it at that point, it's hard not to give in and at least show a little bit, right?
1: You know, listen, a lot of the sales methodologies, you know, still today force this notion of the discovery. And I, I agree that it's important to do discovery, but this is where the conflict arises. And this is what I've seen evolving over, over the years. And I don't mean over the last two to three years, I mean over the last like 10 to 12 years, is that the customer is just better educated um, on, on products and in the industry. They, they're more technically savvy. There's a whole bunch of alternatives. They have many, many choices. They don't have the time or the inclination, but they don't think they do. Mm-hmm. to do what we've been trained to salespeople do our, our entire lives, which is deepen our, our understanding. So, yeah, I, you know, I agreed to do the demo, uh, mm-hmm. which was contrary to everything I, I thought was the right thing to do.
0: And what was the outcome of that <laughs> experience?
1: Well, uh, you know, like you said, it's tough to say no. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that, you know, even though the conventional wisdom suggests uh, you may want to draw a line, I, I think I think sales methodologies and sales approaches need to need to change with the times, and, and understand that the client does have a great deal more availability uh, to look at your product and understand it than they ever have, and that they 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 want to get right to the heart of the matter. So I think it's 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 it, it, we have a need to actually uh modify and, and evolve our, uh, our our selling approach to, to meet that, but it doesn't mean that we have to you know completely um you know uh, ignore the idea, the notion that we need to um you know learn more about the business. But and when those two two things can be done um, you know somewhat simultaneously actually.
0: Yeah and that's what I was going to suggest through that you know my advice to you know if I was sitting in on that call I probably would have done the demo as well but then peppered in discovery questions while I was going through it um, to learn more about them but still show them so and I'm finding you're right that even though the, the modern methodologies say, no, don't don't do the demos, do discovery, no one wants to sit through an interrogation, which is kind of what they feel like, right? Um That's talk right. about that a little bit.
1: Well, sure. So um, you know, some studies I mean, when I was first being trained in the selling software, I was trained by this fellow by the name of Rick Page. I think Rick Page is probably one of the most brilliant guys ever to be in the technology industry. He actually wrote the book and coined the phrase. Hope is not a strategy. So that was Rick. If you've ever heard that phrase, that was Rick's. And you know what Rick used to say was, uh, you know, your customer is probably 20% already persuaded in one direction or another mm-hmm. because they have a network of people and they talk within the industry and within their circle and so forth. Well, today studies suggest it's somewhere between 30 and 60, right? And either way, it's a significant sh- shift in, in buyer pre- predisposition. And so what, what I believe is important and sort of the theme of, of the way I, I believe sellers need to evolve their approach is accept this, understand it, but also uh, begin to shift our approach to, to building trust with the customer. Because when you build trust, you have the opportunity to create influence. Influence are the way, over the way the customer is thinking about the problem. And I call it the why, why are you doing this, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the who, who's impacted by this besides your, organ, besides your area of the organization and how are you going about uh, addressing it? So I think building a trusted advisor relationships with the customer is really important. And you can't do that by starting off immediately with conflict.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you really don't get too far with the demo either. So you've got to kind of do this more, um, as you said, kind of concurrent discovery, trust building, while you're giving some value to them of what they're asking for in it. So we're now in a digital selling environment, right? There's less in-person meetings. So becoming someone's trusted advisor is probably harder than ever. How do you address this in today's modern selling environment?
1: Well, so, it's interesting, Tom. I, I've spent a lot of time, of course, over my career talking with salespeople every single day and, and also interviewing salespeople. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing that, you know, that, that all salespeople believe they have a high, high degree of skill at is building, building relationships. In fact, when I ask uh, candidates, for example, in the interview process, what is it that makes you, you know, really effective in your job or better than you know, others in the industry or something along, along those lines? Nine out of 10 times, it seems, I get the same answer, which is I build great relationships with people. And I don't doubt that that's true, frankly. All right. But when I ask the same fo- follow up question and I ask the, the person to describe you know, how they go about doing it, um, the wheels kind of fall off on their answer. And I get, I get some of the most uh, sort of obscure answers you can imagine. Like one is I'm a really good listener or, you know, I'm I'm really good at follow-up or, you know, something that you would, you and I might think is just sort of the basic table stakes. So, you know, what that taught me is that, uh, you know, people think they've got a great uh, ability to build trust, but what they don't have is sort of a repeatable approach to doing it. And so I I started researching this. I started looking deeper into this and I've put a lot of time and thought into, this whole notion of building the trusted advisor relationship. And I came up with a, a kind of a simple formula, I think. And it's not to yeah, say that- I want some, to know more because you know, I want
0: to, you know, find a way that the listeners, our, evolved, our evolver community can apply this a little bit. So what's your formula for becoming that trusted advisor?
1: Well, so I started to look, I started to try to I guess, decompose what trust is. And so naturally I went to, I got a little academic about it. I went online, I started looking at all these definitions of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I've, i you know, read a couple of books on, on building trust trust and trust advisor relationships. Uh, a Covey book uh, came out a few years ago called the speed of trust. I found that to be really interesting. Um, and so I kind of created, uh, uh I, I guess the fundamental building blocks of trust and they're in the three categories in my, in my view, one is rapport. The other is credibility and the third thing is value and so rapport um, is essentially understanding one another's feelings and ideas the ability to communicate well it's that natural ability to have sort of a you know charisma with someone like a connection with someone mm-hmm. and um, empathy credibility as well, a, right? and empathy that's exactly right yep and so you just have a general good feeling about it. so and that's an essential characteristic for a salespeople. but a lot of people a lot of sales in my experience think that that right in and of itself creates trust. And it really doesn't. Um, the next thing was credibility. The next, the next cre- uh, category is credibility. And that's sort of like the power to elicit a belief, right? You have credibility, you have, you know, credibility and knowledge of, in the content, not just the product, but the industry, their business. And so you bring a lot to the table in terms of an understanding of things so that you look as if you have, you know, authority on the subject so that that's another part of the building blocks and then the third item that i i I sort of derived from from this is value it's how do you transfer that credibility and that rapport into something that's useful and and worthwhile for for the customer right Uh, that's where the transfer takes place when you can have those three elements associated you then have the opportunity to have developed a Trusted advisor relationship with your with your client, and from that trust advisor relationship, now you have, um, you know, the capacity to influence them. They will they will be open to influence, and what I mean by influence is, um, you know, to ask the questions like, why are you doing this? What's at stake for the company? Who else is involved in this? Let's talk about your approach to it. Stuff that that would be kind of know kind of you put that in the area of uh of your discovery but again if you built that trust it doesn't feel like discovery it doesn't feel like interrogation it feels like consulting
0: yeah completely agree so rapport credibility and value are the three that make up your formula and uh i definitely think you're onto something with that greg and um we'll we'll jump into it a little bit more but first i want to focus on the value piece a little bit and you know customers have changed recently the crisis has impacted them going across all of these three dimensions rapport credibility and value how do you think the current crisis has changed the importance of this trust formula and the elements of it
1: well i think two areas come to mind immediately one is that uh, companies are tightening up their expense line for sure and so they're really only investing uh money where they see a tangible and uh, you know high value uh business outcome and financial impact so um, i mean that's that's always been the uh the general theme of uh of companies is to is to invest where they're going to get the best return but i think i think that bar has been raised uh because of uh, the obvious economic impacts of uh of uh, Uh, the pandemic. The other thing I think that has been affected is that, uh, you know, we don't, the the customers value preparedness a lot more now and because you have less time with the customer and now you don't have the additional benefit and the rapport, credibility and value benefit of having face-to-face meetings. So you have a shortened window uh, of time in which to uh, make a, a big impact. And so, with that time, you, you better be you know, even more prepared than you would have been otherwise to, to build that value and build that trust. So it just, it, I think it's gotten, selling has gotten harder on a number of levels, but I think it creates a, an opportunity for some and it's gonna create a real hardship for others.
0: Absolutely. I think as a seller, you've gotta take this into account and really up your game on rapport, credibility, and value if you're gonna be effective. One of the things I'm seeing is, uh, People are a bundle of raw nerves, um, whether it be the crisis, uh, social issues, everything is heightened. Uh, Our nerves are frayed and emotionally, um, we're dealing with a lot more through this crisis, through the pandemic and the uncertainty, the economic uncertainty, the social uncertainty. And what it's doing is, is it's really causing buyers to be on edge and I think recognizing that and adjusting your approach so that you can make sure that you know, they're not seeing your solution or what you're bringing to the table is risky, so that you're not adding to the emotional stress that they might have had that day, and you're empathetic to it. Uh, you're making everything as simple as possible for them so that they're not overwhelmed by anything that you're providing or presenting. Uh, that can all help a lot because they're in this new emotional state, uh, this heightened sense of awareness. Uh, they're also very fearful of change and fearful of making a mistake. So tend to be very risk averse in this environment as well. Any opinion on that?
1: You know, yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I'll tell you, I, I think that's, like you said, that's always been the case. I think now that's being exacerbated uh, by the current uh, you know, pandemic situation and social crises we're, we're going through now. I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick, give you a quick sort of uh, customer example, if, if you'd like, on, on yeah, a, a sure. situation I, I faced. It was, I think it's kind of relevant. Um, so I was with my sales, one of my sales team. We were at the, uh, the Dreamforce conference. This is like about three or four years ago. I worked for a company called Aptis at the time. And we had a lot of customer meetings. And in this case, there was a, we had a conference room, there were about, uh, a company was Fortune Fortune 100 company was there. They had about, I think, as I recall, about eight people in attendance. A lot of tech, um, technical folks, sales ops folks, some leadership people. And we were there to kind of pitch our our story. That's the way Dreamforce works. You know, they come in, they they see a lot of different vendors. And my salesperson was there and doing a doing a pretty good job of of talking about you know the value prop of our product. And the value prop was, you know, the way he was positioning it was you know, productivity and efficiency and workflow and data and, you know, things of that nature. Okay. And, and those are definite value propositions associated with, with any technology, frankly. I mean, technology is here to, you know, you know, integrate data and automate processes so that those would be natural outcomes. Right. Uh, But, but I I was looking at the audience and I'm sensing that, that it was just sort of like this whole me too thing. And I, and I asked the question to the group, you know, in general, and I said, I said, can I ask you a question? When, when you look at technology, when you evaluate technologies like this or others across your company, and the ultimate value proposition is, we're going to increase the productivity and efficiency of your team, or we're gonna improve, improve the workflow, or we're gonna integrate data. I said, do projects like this typically get funded? And there was an awkward silence for a few seconds. And then the woman in the back, uh, her name was Debbie, actually, I remember her really well. She, she was a project leader, and she kind of raises her hand so of space and says, you know what, not really, they, they don't get funded. And I said, you know what, Debbie, that's been my experience too. Yeah. And I said, I think there's just a, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of technology fatigue out there. They're all sort of, we all sound alike. We're all trying to say that you're gonna make your people more efficient and more productive. I said. You know what my experience has been is that we can go after a tangible outcome, you know, such as improved revenue, right, mm-hmm. or enhanced customer experience that we can measure. I said, those are our those are, are, are business outcomes and the financial impacts that, that actually get the attention of the C-suite. And yeah. she said, and, I could and, not and agree aligning. with you more.
0: Aligning to those big objectives, I think is even more important now, right? Which is what you're talking about. It's not the tactical value, it's more the strategic impact that the proposed that's, solution can yeah, have.
1: Yep, keep going. That, that's exactly right. And, and listen, one thing that customers have is this ability to look a great deal more at our products before they ever engage with us. We know that, we know that's shifting the way in which we can sell. But correspondingly, we have just as much opportunity to look at their, their 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 business as we ever have. Right? Used to be back in the day, you know, you had to look at their annual report. Now there's just a whole, you know, plethora of information out there. You can look at presentations from CFOs. You can, of course, you know, read the transcripts of their of their quarterly earnings uh, reports. You can learn all sorts of great stuff. So you can come in with a really focused and high-impact value proposition, and, and you need to do that now more, you know, more than ever. And so the way this call ended, the way this meeting ended was I was I said, well, who's responsible for this particular area of customer experience and revenues? And she said, well, that would be our CRO. I said, would you be able to introduce me to your CRO? And she said, absolutely. And so You know, I think what happened in that one little segment of time there is rather than pitching a standard, you know, generic value prop, I I was able to, you know, hopefully help her realize that I bring some credibility to the table here, right? Like she could have, I, I kind of read that she saw this project could have been a complete waste of time that they spent a ton of months, a lot of time chasing only to find that it came up with a very weak value proposition and didn't get funded and she wants to be is valuable to the company. So the last thing she wants to be attached to is a project that burns a lot of customer resource or company resource, and yet doesn't really go anywhere. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of, you know, building that trust on the front end, I think is important. It doesn't have to happen with product. It can happen with why are you doing this, who's involved, and how you're approaching that, that why, how, and who that I mentioned a little bit earlier
0: absolutely and so you helped them to kind of understand the strategic impact it could have how their business could potentially be reimagined with the solution and that elevated it beyond just the tactical features and functions that could deliver benefit into actual strategic business value i love that and you know part of what you did was you did discovery the right way talk about and we mentioned this before you know, good selling begins with asking the right questions. And I like them to be Socratic questions, right? Things that get you to become self-aware and having the right questions and arming your sellers with the ability to do that uh, isn't always easy. So talk about your methods for getting sellers to know what the right questions are and then to apply them
1: yeah well so first of all it it comes with what i mentioned just a a couple minutes ago and that's deepening your understanding of what the the challenges that their business is facing what what are those and i don't mean spending 30 or 45 minutes you know glancing at things on their website i mean doing some serious due diligence right so you can extract three two three or four items that that are either huge threats to the business or huge unmet needs, thank you. Objectives yeah. that, that have not yet been uh, achieved. And so things like that really need to be surfaced. And before you walk into any call, you, you have to have a good understanding of that. Uh, and then be able to surface it because you know that sometimes the person you're talking to or the people you're talking to, they may not be measured by the same, in the same manner in which uh, the, the, the C-suite is measured, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's to understand that there's a, a gap there and have a plan to, you know, kind of close that gap.
0: Absolutely, and then on the other side of the spectrum, you also mentioned business value near and dear to my heart, being the ROI guy. Uh, and I know you've got a lot of experience in this area. Um, you know, helping a customer to understand how and how much business outcome and value they're going to get from a solution. It's absolutely essential today. And I don't think you're going to get past the gatekeepers without business value or even get past maybe the first couple of meetings, unless you're aligning to some of these business objectives with some big strategic values. So talk about your perspective on business value, how sellers can leverage it and and some of the pitfalls that you've seen.
1: Sure. Well, like you, Tom, I'm, I'm super passionate about, uh, selling and uh, delivering tangible business value. I, I think it's it's at the core of uh, what companies are, are are asking for, and it's really what they need. And one of the first things that that I've observed is that uh, a lot of sellers use the ROI as a means to an end. Okay, use the business case as a method to get their product uh, justified so that they can close the deal. And so they mm-hmm. insert the conversation, they insert the process sort of let's say midway through, through the sales cycle, right? I think this is a mistake for a number of reasons, one of which I think it's very transparent that this is not, uh, the, the goal here is not customer focused, it's, mm-hmm. it's vendor focused, it's to get your project uh, justified. And we all know that that's an important part of any, uh, any project, but really where the process should begin is in your initial calls, in your initial meetings. And it's to, it's to not only help understand what the customer sees as the functional requirements, the related business outcomes, and then those corresponding financial impacts is to listen for what they're saying. It's to listen to what they're, to listen to what they're not saying and to have sort of your sense of what's the gold standard answer uh, for the financial impact. It's to go in understanding that, you know, here are the types of questions I want to ask. And here's a, uh, I call it sort of the bronze, silver, and gold standard answer for, for financial impact. One of the best questions that I've heard asked is, have you guys thought about how big this problem is? Has anybody tried to, you know, sit back and really understand the size and the scope of the financial impact associated with either solving for this or not solving for this? And just sit back and listen to, listen to the explanation of that question. I get reveals reveals a lot
0: i think so too and so you know when you're engaging with business value it's about the business objectives the challenges and then one of the big things you mentioned the cost of doing nothing and really getting them to understand that cost and risk that they face lost opportunities business risk of um staying with the status quo, staying with the manual procedures that you use and staying with that legacy solution. And all of that comes before the value of change and the justification. Uh, All of it is elevated in priority as well, because those things are gonna be seen as much more valuable than understanding, for example, the tactical impact that you can have in cost avoidance or productivity improvements, as you mentioned. So absolutely love your approach. And I think there's really good advice there. Uh, focusing on the business objectives and challenges and focusing on the cost of doing nothing. So Greg, to wrap it up, I know we've covered a lot of ground today, but what's the one piece of advice you'd like to leave our evolvers with today?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I guess um, that the buyer and seller journey journey is, is steadily evolving. Uh, and, and, and as sellers, we need to we need to evolve as well. All the things that we talked about throughout the course of this conversation is, is indicative to what's going on in the industry. Uh, I think to a certain extent um, it, it, it's going to be a threat to uh, sellers who are unable to adapt to this new, uh, this new normal. And the new normal has been, you know, it's been accelerated and exacerbated by, you know, the, the COVID pandemic but it was it was already on a, on a path. Now it's being made more difficult because of things such as you know our inability to be in front of um, in front of customers. So I think you know many of the old school selling methods and, and many of the old school sellers are going to be ma- met with a uh, a difficult road ahead unless they they have a specific plan to ad- adjust, adapt, and evolve to the, to this new approach. And I, I personally believe there's a lot of leverage that comes from uh, this notion of building uh, trusted advisor relationships. And I gave sort of a simple formula, the rapport, credibility value formula. I think there are other approaches to doing it, but most importantly, I think you need a strategy. You can't go in and just sort of wing it. You have to have a really uh, defined, well laid out strategy and your sales methodology needs to wrap around around the notion of building these trusted advisor relationships, because I think whoever does this best in the future is gonna win.
0: I completely agree. Rapport, credibility, plus value, the way to become a trusted advisor. Greg Brown, thank you so much for this advice today.
1: Thank you, Tom, appreciate it.
0: Excellent, and folks to reach out to Greg will include his LinkedIn address. Uh, Greg, can people reach out to you?
1: It'd be my pleasure to speak with him, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And Greg's trusted advisor article is out on LinkedIn as well. It's a great read, definitely uh, has some additional advice we weren't able to cover here today. Greg Brown, building your sellers to become trusted advisors with rapport, credibility, and value. Thank you, Evolvers.